Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 144. Today's guest's name is Brent Bishore, and he owns a company called Adventures, which has completely re-engineered what you think traditional private equity is like. He raised $50 million and it's essentially permanent capital. So he's not charging any fees to the limited partners who are the investors. He has a 27 year hold period. And his whole goal is to take the common sense approach into investing in the companies because he started as an owner operator. He started his company. Then he ended up buying his, his second business with an SBA loan. And he just understands what it takes to run a company. So as he was looking at the complications and the constraints that the typical private equity firms have and the typical cap growth capital that companies have, he just backed into what would make sense to 100% align us with the growth and the long-term strategies of any business. Well, lo and behold, he figured out a way to do that. And as he has gone about doing this over the last decade, he's seen over 13,000 companies inside of them because there's so many opportunities coming his way. So he wrote a book called The Messy Marketplace, which I wholeheartedly suggest that anybody goes and reads because it is everything that I personally wish I would have known prior to selling our company. And it's an actual like meaty book about all the terms, conditions, the jargon, all the stuff that if you were to do a crash course before you sold your company, read this book because the book that we are coming out with is going to be the process about how to put it all together, which is not the guts of what Brent has put together. So highly recommend that you go out and reach out and look at his book. But he has taken all this knowledge and is approaching this whole world of investing into privately held companies in a way that actually makes sense to me, which after all the things that I've learned for the last five years, it's like I just have been constantly perplexed with why is this stuff more complicated than it should be? And so he boils it all down and he's taken a model that is just honestly, it's so refreshing. So Brent and I, in this episode, we get into all the different things of private equity, how deals are structured, why he's engineered this way and has structured his company in this setup how he believes that you should be running a company as an investor and as a long-term partner. And it's just, it was a great, great conversation. We even talked about the complications of the deal structures and the overall like lack of financing that's available to the lower marketplace, which we both think are, you know, it's going to be a problem. And I think understanding the stuff that we're talking about on this episode is huge for any seller or advisor. So I really hope you enjoy this. The last thing is, if you enjoy the episode and you enjoy this show, please give me a rating on iTunes. It's a huge pain in the butt, but it makes it a huge difference as I'm reaching out and trying to find guests like Brent. And if you have any suggestions of someone that you'd want on the show or a topic that you're interested in or want more knowledge on, please reach out because I'm always looking to bring more information to you guys. I appreciate the loyal listeners. It really makes a, a huge difference to me. So that being said, I really hope you enjoy this episode with Brent Bishore. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Brent. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. 
I'm excited because we got, uh, finally we got connected and it was by the time you and I got connected, uh, I had listened to your multiple interviews with you. And so you were all already kind of famous in my world as I was, you know, internet stalking you on these podcasts. I think it was, uh, capital allocators and then the private equity fund cast where I, uh, I've been enjoying listening to other people's shows because I don't like to go back and listen to my own, <laughs> but what, what, you know, I'm excited to have you on because you have a very unique approach on how you got into private equity, your past, and then also the book that you uh, released that I wish I would have read before we sold our business. <laughs> so, what, you know, before the we really get into it, Brent, like why don't, why don't you just give the, the listeners a little bit of the cliff notes of how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, well, so I, I, I consider myself the, the Forrest Gump of private equity. Um, I kind of fell backwards, <laughs> backwards into it. I was a an entrepreneur uh, started a, a number of companies in the marketing space and then had a mutual acquaintance say, Hey, I, I know a guy who's been left at the altar for the second time. You should go talk to him. Thought that meant I should go buy his business. He thought he was just connecting to people that were in the same industry and that were going to be in the same industry for a while. And at the time I was, let's see, I was 24 at the time. Um, I, if you look, you know, see me now, I, I look about 21, 22 now, and I probably looked about 14 then <laughs> and uh, sat across from this guy uh, who was, you know, a business owner, a long-time business owner, and was ready to make a change. And, you know, I, I said, you know, I want to buy your business. And he laughed at me and said, you know, two grown men have tried to buy my business and you're telling me you now want to try to buy it. Um, yeah, good luck. And I said, well, no, I, you know, I, I own companies in the marketing space and um, we talked about the business and um, ultimately he threw out a number that he wanted. And I said, there's no way I could, I could pay that, but I gave him another number that I could pay. And um, he said, well, I'd never sell it for that. And so uh, I said, no problem. And we didn't talk for seven months. And then seven months later, out of the blue, he said, I just renewed my largest account. The business is in great shape. Um, I'm ready to go. And uh, I'll give it to you for the price you asked for. You got to close all cash 60 days from now. Hmm. And I said, huh, okay, uh, let's do it. And, you know, being uh, naive now, I guess I was 25 at that time, 25-year-old, uh, never diligenced a company, didn't know anything about acquisitions, <laughs> um, didn't know anything about private equity. Yeah, right. um, and uh, now I had to figure out how to get a big pile of money together to go, you know, put what amounted to like 800% of my liquid net worth on the line. Um, <laughs> and um, got an expedited SBA loan and, and ended up getting the deal done. And then that provided a springboard to building adventures. So if you kind of Fast forward, we we have uh, we consider ourselves a family of companies that acquires family-owned companies. Um, makes us very unusual is that we buy with no intention of ever selling. We use little to no debt, and uh, we keep leadership in place and augment talents. Um, you know, on sort of an as-needed basis. But we only um, get involved and partner with companies where we like the people and want to keep them around and be with them for a long time. Which so we have so six cool. companies in the portfolio and. Uh, Across the country, I think we have offices, let's see, portfolio company offices in, uh, let's see, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Tucson, Dallas, Oklahoma City, St. Louis, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and Norfolk, Virginia currently. And then as of uh, today, when we're recording this podcast, uh, we are um, partnering with a business up in Chicago that closes tonight at midnight. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. in the Midwest. I love it. Well, and, and yeah. what I'm excited, Brent, is uh, to, to really dive into is your completely unique way of looking at private equity and how you guys are going about doing this because, you know, it's such a fragmented market. And then that's where your book, kind of the messy marketplace is, is, you know, touches on a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious on the journey into that too. So we can touch on that and maybe, you know, because you, you've raised the fund and all, you know, so maybe kind of give us in the timeline and like, so did you, 
did you raise more money or did you raise the, the fund before buying these companies or how, did you do any more acquisitions with, you know, SBA or you know, conventional financing prior to raising the money? Yeah. So we, uh, we, we, uh, if you look at the portfolio before we raised the money, it was five portfolio companies and we just rolled cash flow from the existing operations. And, uh, you know, uh, I live in Columbia, Missouri, and one of the big advantages of it is that we have pretty much the lowest cost of living in the country. So um, <laughs> being frugal and living in a cheap place has its benefits. And, you know, we were able to retain a lot of the cash that we generated over the years and, and redeploy that at, at um, you know, better returns than we deserve. Mm-hmm. So that served as the capital base uh, that we, you know, really got going. And then um, what happened was, you know, we're through the unusual way that we came about getting into, you know, I hate to use the term private equity, but private equity, mm-hmm. um, we're kind of the only people who came into it from a marketing background. So mm-hmm. the way that we handle business development and generate opportunities is is very unusual in the space. And so that continues to compound. And what we found was we had a lot more opportunity than we had capital. You know, after you pay a bunch of taxes and you, you know, you do working capital adjustments and all these things that, you know, the companies that need on an ongoing basis, um, you know, it, the demand for what we had to offer uh, dramatically outstripped our capital base. And so we went out and uh, raised $50 million a year ago, December. And um, that's gone just fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's we, so we, awesome. I, I, you know, I, we still feel so blessed and the, the investors we got have just been wonderful partners. And, um, you know, we're just laser focused on delivering for them. So um, it's been, been quite a wild ride. Well, and, and you, there was a one, of the, and I think it was the Capital Allocators podcast you were talking about where yeah, I'm curious, like, what would, you know, what got your, uh, what really got you going into the, the acquisition mode? Because you had, there was one comment that you made, which is leveraging talent and skills that it compounds and in the knowledge economy. And I don't know why that totally stuck with me because I experienced that in my, our old business. When you build the people and the systems, it's literally, it acts just like capital, but it's very difficult to quantify and and describe to someone unless you've experienced it. So I'm just like, what were some of the things that led you into that space? And then how did you, how did you merge that with your, your financial literacy behind the, uh, as you guys were going? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that we're operators first and, um, you know, investors a distant second. Um, a lot of the financial stuff, to be completely honest, we've had to learn. And we've kind of stumbled along the way. And, and oftentimes we, we, you know, we create this thing and we're like, okay, what if it was round and we could roll stuff on it? And what if it could do this and that? And then we're like, oh, that's a wheel. Oh, cool. Everyone else uses <laughs> wheels, yeah. right? Um, it, it's, it's, it's like a funny thing. So, so we, because no one uh, that, that works at Adventures um, has ever worked in private equity before. Um, that's something that we probably intend to keep. I mean, maybe there's somebody who comes along who's the right fit for us, but um, we do things so differently that we don't want the, the muscle memory of a traditional private equity firm kind of Im- imprinting on us. So, it, you know, in terms of the human capital side of it, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, knowledge certainly compounds, relationships compound. And I would say is it takes a tremendously long time to get good at doing something. But once you get good at it, the fruits are 10x what they were when you weren't as good at it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very unusual growth curve. So it feels like you're really good at something like within six months of doing it, right? Because you just don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, this is the sort of <laughs> false pride uh, that plagues us all and uh, sort of the, the newbie syndrome. And then you realize how much nuance there is to it and you, you find out all the ways you could screw up and, uh, and then you have, to, uh, you have to, to calibrate. And so, you know, over time, uh, we've gotten to see, gosh, behind the curtain of we're pushing 13,000, maybe even 14,000 companies now. 
And that gives us a very unusual perspective to be able to know what works, what doesn't, what do we like? How, you know, have we seen that movie before or, mm-hmm. you know, a movie like that 15 times before? Because mm-hmm. um, we've looked at, at this point, almost every industry that's out there uh, in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's just amazing the diversity economy. Well, and it, it, which is so unique, and maybe we'll, we can touch on your book and why you wrote the book because of like the sheer quantity of companies you've looked at. And then, Brent, I want to make sure that we also talk about like you know when you say because you had mentioned that you know you hate the word private equity, and I think there's there's a lot of you know false there, there's just a lot of stuff going on, which kind of goes into your book of the messy marketplace because it's just so fragmented. So let's maybe start with the book. Why did you write it, and like what is the like how long did it take you to write it, and what's the purpose of it? Yeah, great question. Um, so we wrote the book because um, we wanted to give something to sellers that would get them up to speed on r- really what was the decisions they were going to have to make and prep them properly for the process. And to be honest, we didn't want to write the book. We we went out and surveyed. Uh, we probably read, I don't know, 40 or 50 books in the space. And <laughs> all of them um, uh, sort of Gosh, uh, I'm going to say, kind of without exception, um, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't just fall flat. It was. It was weird. It was. You know, all of them were were business cards that it was basically somebody who was trying to angle for something. And That's what right. we wanted to do was was you know, Adventures is mentioned one time in the book. Um, it's at the very beginning, and I say, look, if if it's something in here resonates and you think we'd be a good fit, of course, come and come and talk to us. But that was the purpose that we wrote it. We wrote it to be able to give to people to help prep them on the reality of the space. So it's called the messy marketplace because it is a messy, messy marketplace. <laughs> it is it, the the sellers are messy, the employees are messy, the leadership teams are messy, vendors are messy, customers are messy, and of course, the messiest people of all are the buyers. And you know, we go into a lot of detail about who are the different types of buyers, what are their incentives, how do they get paid, what do they need in the agreements, and uh, what does the trajectory of the company look like depending on who who uh, acquires the firm. In terms of writing it, uh, so most of it, I'd say 90% of it was written uh, within two and a half, three months. And then it took another 14 months to actually get it published. Um, it, you know, the, Apparently, I needed a, a lot of work. Uh, my bad. <laughs> so um, anyway, it. <laughs> it, it was, you know, I, I think it was probably twice as long uh, when I first wrote it. And we really worked on, on editing it down and making every word count. I you know, I can't stand reading business books that take, you know, one or two good ideas and then just flog the hell out of them. Oh my gosh. So, um, <laughs> yeah, well, so you just date other people's ideas too. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we just wanted to, I mean, there's not a lot of references in the book. There's not a lot of, uh, uh, stories in the book. Um, it's really just the meat of, you know, one of our investors called it the highest stake to sizzle ratio he's ever seen in any book. You know, and I think that's a compliment. I don't. Maybe he didn't intend it as a compliment, but I, I think it's it's a, it's a book that every. I mean, honestly, when I said that, I wish I would have read it because, like, I've had people in my on my podcast, Brent, of like that they did the M and A crash course because they got an out of the blue offer, and then again, they're reading all those books that you and I have probably both all read, and you're just like, these don't do any justice. And this kind of you know this whole topic kind of will dovetail into how you raise your money and the partners that you, the limited partners that you got and like the purpose behind that capital. Because, you know, as I've pulled this thread over the last five years, you follow the money and you'll, and you'll find the motivation. Right. And like, and it's so complicated. Like, I mean, I've said to people, like I've spent five years, thousands and thousands of interviews with owners and on the podcast and specialists. And you just like to learn what you put in that book or to learn enough information to be able to have a dialogue with someone 
is a like it, it's a such a huge mountain to climb. It's almost unreal. And I'm curious, yeah. how did you? What were the ways that you found that? And then describe. I mean, I just, I I just don't know how because it's it, it's like rabbit hole after rabbit hole. So is there is there ways that you accumulate that knowledge, or what was the the best? <laughs> Yeah, I would just say we've hit our face on the pavement a lot, <laughs> like over and over and over again, and sometimes in the same way twice or three times. Oh, and for uh, sure. finally, we realized we should, you know, quit tripping on that same thing. So, um, no, I mean, you know, look, we've been at this for over a decade. And I think what makes this unusual, you know, most people in our segment of the market, if you acquire uh, one company, you're never able to scale out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, what makes this unusual is that we have been able to, uh, scale out of one company into a portfolio of companies. And then now we're, you know, actively building, uh, uh, an, an, an engine that can acquire on an ongoing and consistent basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we're holding for a long period of time. So that obviously accumulates very differently than a traditional private equity firm as well. So I would just say, as we've run into challenges, you know, we take good notes and we try to say, now, wait a minute. Uh, we thought reality was X. Turns out the feedback we're getting is reality is Y. Uh, why is that? Like, what? what yeah. Why? Why do we have such a, a myopic view right now? And and what can we do to learn about it? And you know, was it just a fluke, or is reality really Y and not X? And so, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those learnings we try to put into the book. I mean, I think probably the main lesson that I've learned that I just keep learning over and over and over again. It's in the title of the book. Is just how messy people are, and you should not expect anything differently, uh, including from yourself. We are all, we're all messy in different ways. And so, I mean, I think that's, a that's kind of a theme that we tried to weave through the book of, you know, giving people grace and, you know, trying to make sure that, uh, lines of communication are open and, and, and really even over communicate is something we've learned over and over and over again. I mean, getting a deal done, getting, getting a deal done is easy. Getting a good deal done for both parties is almost impossible. Yeah, you sum that up. And well, and what I find is so interesting about this whole, you know, the deal structures and the financing levers and all this stuff that can be done. It's the thing that I realize as we consult with our clients or I I interview and meet with all these people is, you know, owners know how to run their business. And they're looking at top and bottom line and, you know, hopefully they know what EBITDA is, but they, they, they're kind of in this, you know, it's a really, really big and profitable hamster wheel, right? But when you talk about looking at your business, like an actual asset and then the different things that you can do with it, but then you also have to know operations as well. And then the, like how you apply all of that knowledge that's in your book or the stuff that you know about the M&A marketplace is like how to structure these deals. The ways are endless and 99% of the time, Owners have zero idea what's coming until after the fact because of how skilled all the buy, all the people are that are buying these companies, and they just get totally, you know, it's not like some people do it ruthlessly. I think some people, it's just like when you say it's like it's trying to connect two thousand dots on each side together perfectly. I mean, it's, yep. it's so difficult. Amen. <laughs> you know, it's like is that I, what you mean by messy? It's, it's just like it's yeah, so, like it, like well. Yeah. So, so what we, what, what I like to think about is after the major price in terms of the deal determined, right. And those are the headline things that you always read about. Right. And then the, as an owner, um, you, you, you think, okay, what am I going to get paid? When am I going to get paid it? And under what circumstances am I going to get paid? Mm-hmm. To be honest, that's just the starting line of the deal. Right. Um, there's about 500 ish, pretty significant decisions that have to be made over allocation of risk, what happens in various scenarios. And I mean, um, you got to <laughs> you gotta go through a, a really brutal process of assuming the worst, 
discussing the worst, negotiating the worst, all while building a relationship and getting to close. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is just so difficult. And, um, you know, oftentimes when, when there's inexperience, either on, you know, both on the buyer side, the intermediary side, the legal side, um, it ends up making things that shouldn't be a big deal into a really big deal, the deal killers, and then things that should be a big deal, they end up getting glossed over. Right. And I think that's just the danger, you know, of, of the deal making. And, and what we try to do, we try to talk everyone out of selling their business to us, um, just as a standard practice. So mm-hmm. we want to tell people all the reasons why they shouldn't, right? partner with us. Now we like to have uh, have virtually every deal we do, everyone's rolling forward into it. And we want, you know, partners, we don't Mm -hmm. want sellers, we want partners long-term, but we try to talk people out of it and say, look, you know, if things go well, you're going to make more money by not selling the business to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also want to be generous with them and treat them as a partner, even when we're in negotiations. Because I mean, what happens if you take advantage of somebody in the deal process, post-close, they're going to realize it. Yep. What do you think is going to happen? It's going to wreck your relationship. Yep. And so we try to be very transparent and honest. We don't retrade deals. Um, you know, just a lot of the bad behavior that goes on in our segment of the market. We try to, you know, we try to avoid at all costs. So. Well, and I think you really put your money where your mouth is in the terms that you wrapped it in your capital with, right? And I, I think this is where, like, so every single person that I work with, where it's like, okay, yeah, you're talking to private equity, but there's five or six thousand of them now in the U.S. Yep. And it, you know any couple people can put together a private equity firm technically. Right. And so it's like, where did they get their money and what's the motive behind the money? And I interviewed someone that said every, every piece of every dollar has got a personality tied to it and their mm-hmm. motives. So I think what you guys did is super interesting, interesting because then that kind of ties into your investment thesis. Cause I, you know, kind of like you, Brent, like I believe that most entrepreneurs and most people are pretty smart if they get the context, right? It's like, if you can see the puzzle picture and you can put together the outline of the puzzle, you can, you know, deductive reason into like what's actually going on, but most yep. of the time people have no idea what the picture is and they're not, they're trying to find the corners. So like explain your motive or like your motive for, you know, putting the terms and conditions of the fund together and then how it was like raising that because in, and how does that impact your operational and deal structure? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, uh, because again, we don't come at it from a traditional private equity background, right? We just looked at it with first principles and said, okay, if we were the operators, because we have been operators, right? We know what it's like to operate companies. What are the, uh, what's the mentality and what are the constraints that we would have liked to have had on us, right? From a capital part. Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer is we would love them to be long-term oriented. We don't really like debt and the consequences of debt and how limited the decision-making uh, has to be around debt. Um, and this whole idea of you know partnering with people for such a short period of time, probably installing new leadership, gutting the company, reducing cost structure, and then flipping it to another buyer. Gosh, that would just seem like hell to us. <laughs> well, I, I just, I don't know how else to describe it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I mean, it, it, what I just described is traditional private equity. I mean, to a T. So mm-hmm. traditional private equity is going to lever up the company uh, with as much debt as they can possibly put on it. They're going to uh, reduce cost structure. Uh, they're going to have a very short time horizon. So all decision making is very short term oriented by necessity. And then they're going to try to um, you know, go as hard as they can to uh, accelerate the company's growth for a short period of time, you know, cut corners where they can, and then flip the company to another buyer for hopefully a big profit. And to me, that's just a completely different game than than operating a business, right? That's almost like an actually, entirely... 
Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I, I honestly think, Brent, that it's actually going to impact the US economy because of all, how much it's like it's a bunch of just burning bags of shit going back and forth <laughs> between each other. And then that's what they end up being, right? They were good companies at one point, you know, depending on the frothy, you know, 10 million in EBITDA and above that are going, you know, that there's enough cash flow like safety pad for these, for people to not have to understand how to operate a company, in my opinion. So then, then they just pass it up upon each other, just trying to get that, that, that return for their investors. And it just, it doesn't provide value to the economy, to who the actual are the consumers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, so I would say is I'm a little less worried about it from a, from a macro level, just because the quality of the asset can certainly be encumbered by, you know, the style of traditional private equity, especially putting the debt, you know, lots of debt on there. Um, but the, the, the underlying asset's going to be owned by somebody at a certain point, right? So a lot of times what you'll see in, uh, in traditional private equity deals that go south is just a brutal recap of the investors. Uh, you know, the employees get screwed, certainly on an individual basis, like uh, on an individual company basis, it's, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. But from a macro perspective, the economy, you know, I, I can, I don't think the, the damage is big enough to really have a big macro effect. Um, but I mean, certainly on a micro, micro level, I mean, it is, it is a, it's a brutal existence. And I mean, look, I know guys in the space who, uh, who I respect, um, but they tell their employer, you know, portfolio companies, like, we're going to own you for no more than three years. You have four board meetings a year. Um, that means you have 12 times to impress me. Don't screw it up. <laughs> right. Crazy, like man. it's yeah. just, it's just a very different mentality. So, so for us um, to get back to, to what we do. So in, in many ways, we're the inverse of that. So we're buying with no intention of ever selling. Um, doesn't mean we won't ever sell. Um, there are good reasons and bad reasons to sell. Um, we can talk about that maybe a little bit later if you're curious, mm-hmm. but we buy with no intention of ever selling. We keep leadership in place. We use very little debt and we have an incredibly long time horizon by the nature of the fact that we got a 27 year uh, fund life with an option to renew at year 25, which makes us functionally permanent, right? I mean, nothing's permanent, but mm-hmm. you know, 27 years plus options to go further than that. I mean, that's just an incredibly long runway. And so we're able to ask our portfolio companies our favorite question, which is what are the places where we could invest now that would be high probability, high return opportunities, but maybe wouldn't show themselves for three to five years. Um, no one else can ask that question. It's amazing. And like, and I think about like, you know, what, first of all, before I go down, like the operational stuff and what that actually can do to the business and how liberating that, that, that capital partner <laughs> structure is, is um maybe what were the, the investors like that you're going to like, and I'm just from my own, like, perception it was like I'm assuming you went to like family offices and like people that like their intentions are just cash flow let alone a liquidation event to pay down liabilities or something like that I mean like what was what was how did you find these people and then what what gravitated them towards um, investing with you guys well interesting um, interesting fact we've never reached out to any prospective LP in the history of adventures so everyone's been inbound and that's a kind of a requirement for us is anybody who we talk to from an investor perspective, we want to have read about us, gotten to know us through the material, you know, through the podcast, through the articles we've written, stuff on our website, um, and then reach out and, and pre-qualify themselves. We, we do not, um, <laughs> we, we, awesome. we have never in the history of the firm reached out to somebody and said, hey, my name's Brent. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Adventures. And gosh, we have a deal for you, right? We just, that's just not our style. So um, we, in the first fund, it was really just an accumulation of people we'd talked to over a decade um, who had expressed interest in what we were doing, how we were doing it. 
And um, when we put forth the terms to raise, uh, many of them laughed at us and said, well, first of all, no. Second of all, <laughs> no one is going to say yes. Um, so why don't you guys just do something traditional, do two and 20 and uh, go on your merry way and raise your money and do like everyone else. And we said, yeah, no, that's not going to work for us. <laughs> um, and so, um, I mean, a lot of people thought and probably still think we're insane. The, the structures worked out incredibly well. But I'm sure, you know, people can come up with all kinds of reasons not to do something. And so it, it basically what we found out in the first fund was this really simple but incredibly powerful idea of career risk, which is if you have it's an agency problem, if you are in charge of a pool of money and you could be fired as the result of how you manage that pool of money, you could not invest in our first fund. Just full stop. Mm-hmm. So what, what happened was we had uh, people who said, look, I, I believe in what you all are doing. I think I would invest my own money. But if I put my firm's money, uh, if it's a family office or an endowment yeah. or a pension fund, if I put my, my family's money or you know, the, the money that's at, you know, that I'm a steward of into this thing and you guys do great, you know, it's not going to move the needle for me that much, right? Just as an overall percentage of the portfolio. Yeah. And if you guys do really poorly, it's going to make me look stupid and I can lose my job or get demoted. And so unfortunately, just because you guys are different, I just can't do anything. And, you know, look, people who told us that up front, greatly appreciated it. It's yeah, fantastic. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeses and no's will make you a bunch of money. Maybe's will kill you. Right. <laughs> totally. um, yep. And so the, the families that invested were all families that they, the, the decision maker was the one who owned the resources. Got it. Yep. And it had to be that way. So like, um, because they were willing to tolerate the career risk. So this is this affluent individuals and stuff like that then? Yeah, that? family offices. Uh, I mean, they're, they're all families uh, uh, that invested. Um, yeah, affluent individuals, family offices. I mean, that line's kind of blurred. But uh, we had zero institutions in our first fund. Um, we will have, I mean, you know, uh, in, in the next fund we raise, we will have institutions, but um, but not in, that, not in that fund. Well, and I think it's so important, Brent, because like, like what I always describe to people is like, as I've gone down this rabbit hole for the last five years is like, you, you think about all of the different layers that you just mentioned just to, to, for you guys to have the money. And then you're the buyers, like all of those people have different motives and it all impacts the, the ripple effect of what the decisions are to, you know, open up the next location or launch the next product line or all that Correct. stuff. I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it, the ripple effect is huge. Well, and let's talk about a group of um, quote unquote buyers out there that are fundless sponsors, which is probably the largest by grouping of anybody in our segment of the market by far, which are people that, you know, just hang a shingle out. They have zero committed capital and they're having to do three deals around any single uh, opportunity. They have to do a deal with the seller. They have to do a deal to find equity and they have to do a deal to find debt all at the same time simultaneously. And then they got to negotiate their fees as part of the overall structure. We have seen some absolutely nightmare situations where <laughs> people go years talking to fundless sponsors and getting deal after deal thrown at them with big headline numbers that have zero chance of closing. Oh, right? I know. And it, it, it's you know it's interesting. I mean, like anything else, there are some fantastic fundless sponsors out there that could raise a big fund, choose not to. They're excellent. They're professionals. Right? I'm not talking about those. Nope. I'm talking about the guy that okay, take take a local body of water. <laughs> yeah, we'll take a, take a local body of water and take a local street name and you know combine them together, and now you have a new private equity fund. 
right here to fund the sponsor, right? And so, you know, it's, I'm serious. Like, you know, water street water. capital, right? It's, it's literally, it's like ninth water capital or whatever, you know, uh, it, it, it's, I guarantee you that's probably taken. So, but you know, there's everyone that's out there and all it is, is it's just some guy. I mean, it's just one guy, maybe two people who usually have full-time jobs elsewhere and are out there, you know, scrounging, hustling to do deals and what's challenging for us is, you know, for the uneducated buyer, um, not to go on a rant about this, but <laughs> it's probably the biggest source of frustration in our business because as a buyer, it's really hard to distinguish between how people look on the surface. You mean so seller everybody's buyer. Uh, between, or excuse me, the seller, my okay, bad, yeah. Well, yeah, the I'm seller, fine. yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I apologize. Um, so, so with the seller, it's just really hard to distinguish. Everyone looks the same on the surface. Everyone says they have money. Everyone says they have this experience. They have all these great relationships. Like they're winning, right? The, the challenge is that it, it's totally different ballpark from having a fundless sponsor that has to do, you know, uh, go out and scrounge for equity, go out and scrounge for debt, put it all together and do a deal at the same time. And making big promises is easy, right? And so I think that's where it's just a completely different and fundamentally uh, unfortunate way to look at the world in most cases is, you know, they're just out there to hustle to try to do deals. And their incentive is to all do deals, not to do a successful deal, not to do a win-win deal, but just to do deals. Um, so anyway, no, no, I'll I step off my soapbox now. No, no. Well, trust me. I mean, this is the whole, the, the, your, your episode 144 into my soapbox or whatever it is. So like, I mean, sure. what, what I, what I find, and that's the biggest problem I see out the Brent where like you, if you think about what you did is like the fact that you, you know, Forrest gumped it back into private equity, it's more just financing and running a business correctly. And like, I, I to go onto my soapbox is like, that was my whole problem with our, with our company is we, our bank was a POS. I mean, like they were under a bunch of problems. They were suffocating us financially. And then you go, okay, well, like now if you think about the financing mechanisms that are out there to be able to facilitate the, the growth of a company over the long haul and to be able to transition to a, a different buyers, it's almost impossible to find that mechanism. And you essentially created it, right? Which is amazing. Versus you have all these different motives of all the different private equity firms and all the different reasons that they want to buy a company, right? And the, the, the whole problem is you have, like you said in your book, is you have thousands of different types of buyers and their different education levels and their different motives and, and the sellers know nothing that's in your book. That's the problem. Correct. So then you yep. go like, I mean, everybody, I mean, because, you know, I've been building this growth and exit planning practice for five years and people are like, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to practice this or I don't need to like learn this. And I'm just going, you don't even know what you don't know. And you're going like, it is so complicated out there. And you just are like, you're, it's, I don't know. I like my, that's my soapbox. And I don't know how to, Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like, you're just sitting there going yeah. like, the, no, I mean, this is the reason for the book. I mean, we, 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 we wanted to have, it's like the first five to seven hours of conversations that we want to have with every seller. That's the, that's the book. And, and every CPA and wealth advisor and family members of the, of the seller and leadership teams and employees. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it's all of the nuance of like, if you really want to understand, you know, who's doing what in the situation, um, that's what the book's for. So, well, no, it's perfect because I mean, it, you know, when I, when I was listening to the, the private equity fund cast with you guys, like it, and this is where I, like, I've kind of been backing into the same exact conclusion that you had, which is like, as I'm looking at helping people transition and, or like having to facilitate either family buy or uh, transitions or like another third party lifestyle. I mean, the SBA loan will only get you so far layering yep. it with that fees that there's a short am schedule. And so you're going, well, that's not really fantastic. Right. And then 
like pretty much essentially in my opinion, most banks out there don't want to lend any money. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, not if you need it. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you ever heard the umbrella story that a, uh, a banker will give you an umbrella when it's sunny out and take it back when it's raining? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that is unfortunately uh, very true uh, as a norm. I think there are some good bankers out there. Uh, we certainly have partnered with some of them. But well, I, think yeah, the, I mean, you probably agree with like on all this stuff is like you have the 5% of the advisors and, and you know, any given designation that are fantastic, but the yep. quantity of the other people that are just kind of bumbling around is it, the, it, the chances that that's a messy marketplace, right? But you know, kind of going back to that, that line of uh, thinking is in, so you have these conventional banks where the, 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 the one benefit that a seller has in a conventional bank is the bank kind of regulates the terms and conditions, right? They're like, hey, yep. this is kind of what you have to do. It's going to be as clean as possible. And then you get into the, the second layer of that of the whole private equity marketplace, right? Which the different ways of financing these things are crazy. So maybe, you know, can you give it a couple examples of like, where the terms and conditions can change because it's the whole price. Then there's the terms and conditions and what people do to the balance sheet in different yep. of layers of spectrum of with the, with the debt. Yeah, well, so maybe we could just uh, talk a little bit about like the when, when we think about debt and equity, it's called the capital stack, right? And like what the capital stack would look like in a traditional private equity uh, model, whether it's a fundless sponsor or a traditional private equity firm. It, what they would do is they would uh, create a new layer of equity called preferred equity. It usually comes with an 8 to 10% coupon that clicks away uh, as a payment in kind. So there's no cash necessarily going to pay it down, but it just clicks clicks away, right? So if it's, you know, $10 million of, of preferred equity, then every year, you know, there's a million dollars at a 10% rate that would be added to that debt, right? Mm -hmm. On a compounding basis. So uh, any roll forward is typically rolled forward in the common stock, not in the preferred. And any employee equity is in uh, common stock. So you kind of start at the very top of the waterfall and you say, okay, you're going you're gonna, to uh, put on senior debt. Uh, so this is going to be traditional bank debt, uh, probably somewhere between two and four terms at close. Can and you then you're gonna, Sorry, can you explain that to my listeners? Because I, I know what you're talking about. I just want to make sure that as Yeah, yeah. I apologize. Uh, that was, that was, great. That was jargony. No, 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 no it was jargony. I, so, so, so when I say four turns, so four turns of typically EBITDA. So if the business is doing $5 million of EBITDA, they would be able to put between, call it three and five times that amount on the company. So 15 mm -hmm. to $25 million of senior debt on the company. And then they potentially could put another two or three turns of uh, MES debt. So another, call it 10 to 15 million of MES debt, which is a subordinated debt which is uh, typically unsecured and has very flexible payment terms on it, but is at a very high interest rate. Yeah, so right, typically yeah. MES debt starts at 12, maybe 14%. And we've seen it as high on deals as 22%. So, I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you know, not quite payday lending debt, but it is, I mean, it's, it's, close. it's very aggressive. Right. And so if you look at it and you say, okay, I'm going to pay seven times uh, EBITDA. I'm just going to make up an argument for traditional yeah. private equity. Um, they may be only putting in half a turn of equity on seven times of, of enterprise value, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, which creates an incredibly levered structure. And what happens is, um, you know, that waterfall's created. So senior debt sits at the top, MES debt comes down, you know, below that, and then the preferred equity, and then the preferred, or, and then the uh, common stock. And so the, the, the money has to flow all the way down to the common stock for really anybody who's rolling forward for employees. Um, any incentive compensation, I mean, that that's where it gets really interesting. And it creates a highly levered structure that 
if things go great, everyone makes a bunch of money and everyone wins. If things go even just good, you are setting yourselves up for a lot of pain. And I you know, know that's that's just completely different. So so how we structure deals, the last two deals that we did, um, we paid uh, all of our uh, purchase in equity uh, with a little bit of seller debt that they came along, um, which we paid off shortly thereafter, and just one common class of stock. Everyone eats from the same table. Everyone shares in the fruit at the same time. And uh, we just think it's a, it's a much better way to go about business. Like if you have to, you know, have a, a PhD to understand how your performance affects the, the compensation you get. I mean, I think that's, that's a problem. Well, and now think about that. Well, totally agree. And then think about how, like, I mean, so one of my buddies just sold his company for north of 25 million bucks and he had 20 plus offers on the table, huge swing in how much the price was, but the terms and conditions, nothing. I mean, think about these owners who are like, first of all, if you're doing 5 million at EBITDA and all of a sudden you're, you got what, three and a half million in, in debt payments every single year. Like, yep. how are you reinvesting in the business? And like, what happens you if you I know. And then what happens yeah. if you have like, you know, China tariffs or something like that, you know, I mean, trade tariffs. You go out of business. <laughs> no, it's so stressful. And like, so then like the owner's sitting there going, well, I got 25%, you know, that I rolled forward, but in what part of the cap stack is that? Right. And then like, how stressful is that as you're like cutting, it just, it, it's so, but you have to have a PhD to sell your company. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and I think this is where, you know, what we try to do is, is, um, really give people an apples to apples comparison. So if you're not using any debt or very little debt, it's just going to be a completely different structure and a completely different way to look at it than if you use a bunch of debt. I mean, it's not, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you put a bunch of debt on a company, you can pay more at close, right? Mm -hmm. Like because you're subordinating everything else, any roll forward to that big stack of debt, right? Mm -hmm. So you're pulling out more of the value of the company. And look for for owners who could care less other than they just want the biggest check at close. Like it's a it's a great option, right? I mean, I, I know people who've done that. I mean, the companies have done poorly afterwards, and they don't care. Yep, right. Yep, I mean, it yep. is what it is. Yep. If you care about your employees, you care about the reputation, you care about the business. It's a it, it's a pretty precarious uh, situation. And so, I mean, for us, we like sellers who care deeply about their employees and about the business. We think that's a really nice selection bias. Um, and of course, we're going to have to pay in the same ballpark. Uh, as everyone else, but obviously offering it in a completely different structure, we think is a tiebreaker in our favor. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, well, I mean, it's just so clean. And then you just, you're actually partnering with them versus using them as a, as a springboard <laughs> for, sure. for something else. Um, is there any reason that you don't put any like conventional financing on it or like, you know, something that's a, you know, 20 year, you know, so you can at least yeah. pull a little bit. Yeah. Um, the, the, the biggest reason is the complexity of close and getting to close. So, um, we, I mean, we've certainly, we've done uh, bank debt in the, in the past and we're not averse to using it. We just think that um, if you're only going to put a small amount of debt, it's not worth the, the juices and worth the squeeze um, to get a completely different entity that's got a diligence that all the paperwork, all the fees, um, all the headache, and then having somebody who can pull out the rug at the last minute. Like when we commit to something, we want to be able to close and know mm-hmm. we can close. Yep. Every outside party that we get involved, this is the same reason we never do quality of earnings. Uh, analysis on any of the companies. We all do it internally. This is the same reason why we, ha- we carry in-house counsel um, because we want the surety to know that when we commit to doing something, we can go as hard as we can on it. We don't want it out somebody's outside schedule to, to affect it. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't want outside parties to have influence over our ability to do the deal or not. Right. Well, it's just like you're using, con- like that's like, you know, the biggest shock that I had Brent out of all this stuff and it, it, like 
I think maybe it's because you and I are coming from the operations perspective. Like I just got in this. I'm like, why is this so confusing? It doesn't need to be <laughs> like, right. and then it's like, you just realize because there's people that are making money every single way you turn <laughs> and like, well, this makes sense, but it doesn't need to be that confusing or that complicated because in the end of the day, people are just selling products and services, right? Yep. <laughs> like that's what they're trying yeah. to do. And, well, and we're, money. yeah, we're now seeing uh, double or triple intermediated deals come to us, which is a whole new thing that we haven't experienced until fairly recently, what? What? which is, let's say, let's say you go out and you say, Hey, I have this idea. I want to go roll up plumbing businesses. Mm-hmm. So you go and you sign up, you have, you have no experience in deals, but you go and sign up um, a bunch of plumbing businesses, right? But you have no access to capital. So now you go hire an intermediary that's going to go get you access to capital. So then you have another group that potentially can get involved in it to provide debt financing. So you basically have, you have three completely independent people that are all dependent upon the deal closing that have nothing to do with post-close operations. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, wait, who's, who's involved? Who's getting paid? What? And wait, 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 what, how is responsible work? for the outcome? Right. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and you get like, there's all these cooks in the kitchen and you're not quite sure why, like, why, wait, why am I talking to you? Well, I put the deal together. Well, no, you didn't really put the deal together. You just you just put a theory together. The deal's not done. You're asking us to negotiate the deal now. Well, I'm acting on the seller's behalf. Oh, okay. So you're a sell side intermediary. Well, no, 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 no. You're going to pay me as a buyer. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just like it's the strangest thing. We we've yeah. seen this. We've seen this now fairly regularly. Well, and and what I'm to kind of like shift downward because you you know just to clarify for the listeners, you're looking for is it. 2 million in EBITDA and above two to 15, uh, three, three kind of three and above is kind of where we are now. I mean, we will go as low as two, uh, but it needs kind of be, be going from two to five is kind of how we think about it. So um, three, three and above is really more of our sweet spot. So, and then this is just, I'm, I'm curious I, but because I know we've only got a, uh, you know, with about 10 more minutes and I guess I want to touch on your operational um, relationship with your, with the companies too. But you know, just, this is for my pure curiosity, Brent is like, I, I'm seeing it in, I'm seeing this with uh, the segment of the market. When you look at the 80, 20, so 20% of the market. So there's 6 million privately held companies in the U S right. So 20,000 or above hundred million in revenue. And then there's 350,000 that are between 5 million and hundred million in revenue, which kind of, you know, is the yep. two, two to 15 in EBITDA or whatever, something like that. And then, then there's 5.6 million underneath 5 million in revenue. And so the whole thing that I've been seeing, I mean, they're all baby boomers. So two out of yep. three people are going to transition over the next five to seven years. And I, I'm like, I'm like, can you go back to our earlier point of about the macro stuff is the financing of these companies between 200 and 2 million in EBITDA. It's like the SBA and that's pretty much it. And like the, like, I don't know how the, like how this transition is going to work <laughs> over the next handful of years, because most of the companies will shut down. I think so too, man. Cause like, I'm sitting yep. here going like, there's, there's been a couple of companies that I've had the opportunity to take a run at here pretty you know, re- in the uh, recent um, couple months. And it's like, okay, so you're looking at 800 and EBITDA and so you're going back to like how your cap stack, you're talking about how creative you can get when the, the companies are bigger, you can pay the seven times, but like the companies can't pay for themselves and put the yep. debt on. And so it's just like the mechanics, just none of it works. And I'm sitting here going, how is this going to unfold? <laughs> Yep. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a mess. <laughs> it is a mess. I mean, I, yeah, I, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, the lower end of the low, lower middle market represents the greatest legal business opportunity in the world right now. Um, in my opinion, um, the challenge is it's almost impossible, um, to get traction. I mean, I get, I get approached, I'd say at least three times a week, if not more 
um, by people who say, I want to buy a business. You know, will you help me? What advice do you have? Right. And I actually wrote a piece on literally titled how to buy your first company mm-hmm. for this reason, because I pass along. And I mean, what it shows in there is all the gates you have to get through to get it done and how difficult it is. And usually the money side of it, like what you pay for the company is not nearly the most difficult part of it. Um, it's, it's usually just all of the details. And then what happens to the company post-close? A lot of these companies, unfortunately, are, are pretty much solely dependent upon one person or maybe at most a handful of people. And when those people aren't there or they get it by bus, um, the business just detonates. Um, so they don't, have, know, really they, don't have, they don't have any of the systems in place or any, I mean, Correct. Are, you, are you familiar with the value opportunity profile? A friend of mine owns the company. I'm not. Oh, Ken Sanginario. We don't have enough time for the, the, this on the podcast, but it, he tied company-specific risk. So there's uh, uh, like 47 subcategories that roll into eight key drivers, and each one of those has a percentage, and they all roll into company-specific risk that tied to the discount mm. cash flow. So mm. it's amazing. So you get you, there's a way to there's ways to figure this out. But uh, so Ken's really looking at the intrinsic value of these. But my point is, like most of these, you know, the, on the lower market, they don't have the intrinsic value. And then you, it's just, it's, it's so, so it's, it is a mess. And so they don't have the systems or the processes or any of that stuff as you scale up. And um, there's a, there's actually a book uh, called the acquisition or, well, it's called uh, buy then build and uh, walk. Oh yeah. Yeah. Walk yeah. was on my podcast. And so he wrote that whole book, which is like, here's literally how to, you know, be a, a lower market acquisition entrepreneur, which is kind of like what you're talking about. But like you read that book and you go, okay, so the book is going to gain a bunch of traction. But it, I kind of equated to rich dad, poor dad back in the day going, okay, well, you know, t- tons of people are going to read it and like 1% of the people are going to actually be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, it, uh, it's dressed in overalls and looks like hard work. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So I want to go back because I want to make sure that you, you uh, can explain it to the listeners. It's like, so how does, you, you know, because of where you get your money and the, the intentions that you have and then how you actually finance them or lack of financing, right? Is like, what is the operational strategies that you have taken as you buy the companies? And then maybe that ties into how you actually scaled yourself out of that first company. Yep. So what is the overall strategy within, within the portfolio companies? So our first rule and the most important rule that we have, we talk about it all the time internally is do no harm. That is our biggest, biggest thing. And it may sound funny to say because it doesn't sound very exciting, but if the business is continuing to be run uh, in the similar manner to how it's been run in the past. And I mean, literally what we tell our um, uh, our executive teams uh, right at close is next week, do the same thing you would have done without us or with us. Exact same thing. Don't deviate at all. Just keep doing what you're doing. Work however much you're used to working. Uh, do whatever you're supposed to do, right? And we're just going to sit there and we're going to watch and we're going to learn. And we come in with a posture of humility and of uh, true caring. Like we want to get to know people and care about them. And I think until you get to know a company, uh, it is patently insane to think that you're going to come into a company that somebody's been operating for 20, 30, 50 years and immediately have all these great ideas that should be implemented, right? That is, you talk about the worst form of pride. It's horrible and it's toxic. So this idea of like in private equity, there's like the 60 day plan and the hundred day plan and the, you know, whatever day plan, right? And everyone's like, oh, we put them through this rigorous post-close process of optimization. Yeah, I wonder like, why people hate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and on top of that, like, you wonder why there's so much upheaval in these companies. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're buying the company, you should like the company. Like, imagine that. <laughs> there you go, right? Yeah, right? No. Like, like, 
<laughs> I don't understand, right? So like, of course, we have access to resources that are unusual in our segment of the market. And we try to bring those resources to bear in the companies very gently over a long period of time at the discretion of the leadership of the company. So I, I literally can't remember the last time we told a portfolio company what to do in any way. Like zero. I literally can't remember. Mm -hmm. We haven't done it. So what we always do is we always say to, to the leadership, okay, you all are incentivized to do well. We want you to do well because if you do well, that means we're doing well. Here are the resources that we have access to that are maybe unusual talents, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think those would be useful, let us know and invite us in. Mm -hmm. So we want invitations. But the last thing we want to come in and do is say, okay, okay, guess what, guys? We're going to extend our payment terms from 30 days to 90 days. Tell all your vendors, <laughs> right? And then they're like, well, we just lost our three best vendors that we've had for 20 years. I don't care. Figure it out. And they're like, oh, we have all kinds of problems with quality now. <laughs> oh, do you? Well, why do you have problems with quality? Well, because we lost all our great vendors. Uh, um, that know. sucks for you guys. Right? I know. I know. So I, it's just like a lot of this just stuff just, I mean, it's common sense, but it's, you know, treat people as people. Like that's, that's what it just comes down to. Respect I them. I know. I know. It's, 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 so are you familiar with the book Conscious Capitalism? Mm -hmm. Yep. It, yeah. Like, so there's like people like, oh, like, it's so fun because I've been like, as I've been, as I got really kind of sucked into that whole world. You know, it's like nice, Brent, to hear people talking about the stuff that you're talking about. Cause like, that's what I was like going through it. I'm like, as I was turning around our business and like, if you just treat it, treat people like, well, it's amazing. And like the summary of that book is like, just treat everybody really well and you're going to do yeah. good. And you'll live a better life too. Like there's a lot of ways to make money in this world. And just because you can make money doing it doesn't mean you should do it. Like there mm -hmm. are many more things that you can do than you should do. Right. Right. I, I, I totally agree. I think what you're doing is so awesome. And, you know, one last question on like the mechanics, you not to go totally like off the, the beaten trail again, but you, you know, you, you talked about the two and 20 that most private equity firms do, you know, how explain like, cause you, you normally they charge a two, 2% 2 asset management fee for the people. So the $50 million. Which is usually more like four to 7% when you actually take into account all the reimbursements and how it actually works. But yes, we can. No, no, I tr trust me. I was like, I was like, holy crap. As I was listening to the Funcast guys, like, yeah, I guess, you know, when they don't have a deal that closes, they read it, they, they do the reimburse of a half a million dollars to do diligence stuff to the LPs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God. But like, so, yep. you know, how, how, like, how did you structure? I mean, is it like, do you have like an override or is it carried interest? Like, well, how does your firm actually yeah. benefit out of all that? How do we get paid? Yeah, yep. it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing. Well, first of all, I think we have the largest co invest in the history of private equity. So I'm 15% of the LP base personally. Um, so you talk about aligned incentives. Normal private equity co-invest is 2% across the entire firm. So the firm has to come up with 2 to 3% maybe on the high end. Across uh, all the, the firm partners? Across all the different partners wow. of, of a fund, right? Um, I'm 15% personally. So that's a, that's a huge difference. Um, second, we take no fees of any kind, zero. So no management fees. We don't take reimbursement for travel. Like there's no, like we do dead deal fees. We absorb those internally. Those don't get passed on to LPs, nothing. They don't pay for any of the team. They don't pay for any of our, like none, no expenses. I'm trying to say like 15 different ways. Cause people are like, well, but what about this? I'm like, no, none, <laughs> yeah. like no deal fees. No, no, no. I said none. Remember when I said none, yeah, none, like zero, <laughs> zero. Right. So we, um, the only thing we do is we have a hurdle rate and above that hurdle, we share in the percentage of free cash flow that the companies, uh, throw off. So it's a very aligned structure where the better the companies do and the increasing amount of cash yield they generate over long periods of time, uh, the better Adventures does. 
and the better our investors do. So mm-hmm. it is like 100% aligned. And the cool part about our structure is it allows us to sit on our hands when we should, and it allows us to do a lot of deals when we should, because our interests are all aligned. Like no one cares if we don't if we don't do a deal in a year or two because no one's paying us a fee. Like they don't care. Yeah. I love so it. anyway, we tried to just again first principles like you know blank page of paper like okay what would we want to be able to keep doing and how do we want to do it and the last thing I want from a personal standpoint is incentives to do deals. Like I think that is the worst incentive you can possibly have. You I, want an incentive to do good deals and to do good deals with good people and those just don't come along very often. Right. It's really hard. Well, and especially the amount of bad deals and the overpriced, the overpayment of stuff right now is going to, you know, haunt a lot of people because they're just incentivized to deploy the money and it's yep. going to get worse. Well, we're yep. running short on time. So I want to make sure like you can give your, like, what's the best way to get in touch with you? I mean, we got the book link where we're going to put all the links in there, but what's the, what's the, where, how do, how do people find you, reach you and yeah. all your information? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm probably the easiest person to get a hold of. Um, so I'm at Brent B. Shore on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn easily. You can go through the website. Uh, all the all the submission forms go straight to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, available. Uh, the 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 company uh, you can find our web address is just adventures with a dot before the es. So not dot com dot es. And um, yeah, feel free to have people reach out if they'd like to uh, be in touch. I mean, we're happy to help if we can be helpful. If there's one thing, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but like because you know your exposure and your experience is so deep, right? Like. You know, if you were to summarize your book or what you've learned so far for the sellers, you know, what would be like one thing you'd one like actionable thing besides read your book, which I recommend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say spend um, spend as much time researching who the buyers are and what the structures of deals are that you would to buy a new TV, right? So just just you know, put in <laughs> right. the effort. To um, and and don't what I would say is uh, trust advisors that you have in your life, but verify and also look at the advisor's track record and history. If your attorney has done one deal in the past ten years, um, they're probably going to have a very different view than the modern marketplace and kind of what's going on. I love and um, yeah, so I would just say and just just use first principles, just think through things and um, get to know the buyers uh, and partners ahead of time. One of the things I think is most damaging, and not to go on a, a, a long soliloquy here, though, that is most damaging currently in the environment, especially of intermediated deals and auctions, is this idea of like rush to close, closing in 45 days, reps and warranties insurance. Like it, it is all um, how do you get a group of people frothy about an opportunity and then get them to jump through a whole bunch of hoops, none of which are actually getting to know the company or the, or the seller. And crazy? I think it just produces horrible results. Oh, and um, look, it gets deals done. And in all fairness to the people doing it, like for the most part, they get paid based on deals closing, not based on performance for either the seller or the buyer. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it, it works out great. Yeah. And what I would say is um, we consistently see really broken situations, um, either deals that haven't closed or deals that have closed and been very regrettable based on not knowing who the parties are that you're going to be, you know, married to post clubs. Right. I mean, it's like, it's like trying trying to do a Vegas wedding, right? Like, Oh, hello. My name is Ryan. Would you like to get married in 20 days? Right. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, do the work. So anyway, it's been really, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Brent, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, I hope you learned a bunch in that episode with Brent. I mean, he, I mean, what he's doing is just amazing. 
So I think the biggest takeaway I have for anybody out there is this world of M&A is extremely messy. To find the resources like the Messy Marketplace book that Brent brought to the whole world is just amazing. And it just really, really do the due diligence on all of the advisors, all the buyers, all the people out there, because it's up to you to protect yourself. So if you can just do one thing, which is do enough research that you would to buy a TV, like Brent said, and you'll be putting yourself in the top 1% of all the sellers that are out there. If you want to do a little bit more research than just doing the TV style approach, we are launching our growth and exit planning accelerators, which is a 12 month program where it's 10 business owners that are non-competing and it takes the whole growth and exit planning process and the five principles and it layers it over a 12 month process. So there's a start, there's a finish, it's a thousand bucks a month. And the goal is that you can do this if, even if you're involved in other peer groups because it's complimentary and it's just a framework that we're bringing all the content on all the resources to you so you can at least level up your knowledge and all this stuff. So I really suggest that you check out the GEXP Collaborative website. If you want more information, reach out to me and schedule a call on the website. Otherwise, uh, I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.